0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week, the environmental impacts of the monsters of the sea.
1: At the top end of the scale, we're talking about ships that are
2: around 400 metres long. And human genes in a Neanderthal genome suggest
3: even earlier interbreeding than previously thought. An early modern human population met and interbred with the ancestors of this Neanderthal individual roughly 100,000 years ago.
0: Plus the latest from the annual meeting of the American Academy for the Advancement of Science. This is The Nature Podcast for February the 18th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith.
2: And I'm Noah Baker.
0: The entrance hall of the International Maritime Organization is like a mini port. All around the edge of the hall are scale models of ships, four or five foot long versions of the enormous vessels built to hold thousands of shipping containers or bulk containers for fuel or grain. I was at the IMO to meet spokesperson Lee Adamson.
1: These models are made usually by the ship builder at the time of the ship being built and they cost tens of
0: thousands of pounds. The real things can cost tens or even hundreds of millions. But then again, they are the workhorses of global trade. Most of the world's cargo travels in vast ships that make car ferries look like toddler's toys.
1: At the top end of the scale, we're talking about ships that are around 400 metres long and they could be anything up to 50, 55 metres wide. Uh, this day and age, they're carrying um, something like 18 to 20,000 20-foot containers.
0: The downside for the environment is that shipping emits 1 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide a year. Local air pollution at large ports is also a problem and scrapping and recycling ships can have detrimental effects on the health of workers in countries with looser safety standards. For the mileage the shipping industry does, it's actually more energy efficient than air or road transport. But the sheer scale of the enterprise ensures its emissions remain high. What's more, shipping, and aviation for that matter, are not included in the emissions cuts agreed to in Paris at the end of last year. Transport researcher Marco Wan at the University of California, Davis, wants to see shipping green up. Starting with the bunker fuel that many ships use, which is high in sulfur.
4: Shipping can be very dirty. It uses the lowest grade bunker fuel, which is rich in impurities. Um, Bunker fuel contains 3,500 times more sulfur than road diesel. Uh, As one can imagine, ships getting larger and pollution is getting worse and worse. One study shows that a single large container ship can emit cancer and asthma-causing pollutants, equivalent to that of 50 million cars in just one year.
0: Sulfur, carbon dioxide, nitrogen oxide. In one of the world's largest container ship ports, Hong Kong, one says that up to half of all airborne pollutants come from ships. These pollutants have been linked to thousands of deaths from heart disease and lung cancer. The International Maritime Organization, the IMO, is the body that regulates shipping on behalf of the UN. It has a long-standing treaty on pollution.
1: The International Convention for the Prevention of Pollution from Ships, um, which is universally known as MARPOL, um, that was first adopted in 1973 and it now has six annexes, uh, the most recently adopted being an annex dealing with, uh, with air pollution and emissions from ships.
0: These conventions work like other high-level agreements. Every country signed up has to adhere to them. And there are correlations, Adamson says, between the conventions coming in and things like oil pollution falling. One agreement that the IMO hasn't got in place yet has to do with ship scrapping. Ships do not go calmly into retirement, says Wan.
4: Um, The scrapping process can release hundreds of toxic materials into the environment. Workers are also exposed to hazardous fumes and gases. So the international community should minimise its risk to human health and to the environment. Um, Port authorities should also work together with the science community to review the environmental impact of ongoing development projects.
0: With an industry like shipping, rules and regulations have to be international. A ship could be built in Liberia, sail during its life to all the world's continents, through polar regions and tropics, and end its life being scrapped in Bangladesh. International policy, though, is not exactly fast as Lee Adamson acknowledges.
1: It's true to say that, there, that the process does take time, um, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that the, the outcome of the process applies to an entire global industry on which everybody relies, um, and it's absolutely important that the standards are agreed are, uh, are the right ones. Um, not just from the, um, from the point of view of, uh, of the outcome to the environment, but also that they are actually practical and implementable.
0: Marco Wan and his colleagues don't think the IMO should wait around for all its members to agree. He and his team propose instead that they target individual countries and help them to clean up their ship-scrapping operations while waiting for international laws to pass.
4: Some international treaties have not been approved by many of its members up to today. So we just can't simply wait because it could take over 10 years for a treaty to come into force. That's too long. Um, so timely guidelines and suggestions designed by the International Maritime Organization to individual countries are urgently needed during this transition period.
0: 60 years ago, when the first container ship sailed from New Jersey, it carried 58 containers. Nobody pictured quite how big its descendants would be. One Wan wants to make ships greener, Because they're not likely to get any smaller.
4: Many experts, including my colleagues at the university, say they just can't imagine how big is enough.
2: Coming up in the research highlights, we've gone all creepy crawly with cockroaches and termites. But first, we've known for a few years that humans and Neanderthals mated. These ancient escapades, which happened around 60,000 years ago, left traces of Neanderthal DNA in the genomes of all humans from outside Africa. But it turns out the affair was going on long before that. Researchers studying the genome of a female Neanderthal from a cave in southern Siberia say they found evidence of another, earlier encounter with humans. Sergi Castellano at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany spoke with Nature reporter Ewan Calloway. Castellano and his team discovered this earlier interbreeding when they compared the genome of this Eastern Neanderthal with her relatives to the West in Europe.
3: What we find in, in, in the genome of this uh, Eastern uh, Neanderthal are signatures of, um, of interbreeding with an early modern human um, population that um, met and interbred with the ancestors of this Neanderthal individual roughly 100,000 years ago and interestingly we do not find evidence for such interbreeding with the European Neanderthals and this suggests that this admixture probably happened at the time that Neanderthals from Europe were moving towards the east and that may have happened also around 100,000 years ago. So in a way, this would be the first genetic evidence of such early modern human expansion out of Africa and that we can now see indirectly by the traces they left in the Neanderthal genomes that were also migrating, in this case, towards the east.
5: Who were these humans leaving Africa 100,000 years ago when they bumped into
3: Neanderthals? Are they our ancestors? Who are they? We don't really know. What our models tell us is that this is a population, an early modern human population, equally related to Africans and non-Africans, suggesting that it split early in the history of early modern humans in Africa. We cannot really distinguish the exact point of divergence, or even if it's ancestor to all present day humans today. But it is an early modern human population that, earlier than we had thought before, left Africa and already encountered um, Neanderthals.
5: These humans interbred with these Eastern Neanderthals, or these Neanderthals on the way uh, to the east. Did the humans leave Neanderthals with any, any useful genes or, or traits that you know of?
3: We do find, of course, a list of regions that contain genes and that appear to be in from modern humans into um, the Altai Neanderthal genome. But it's still, I think, early to, to say much about the function and whether some of these int- integrations were uh, adaptive in any way. I guess
5: we're starting to see some, some evidence that, you know, the, the Neanderthal genes that humans carried, some of them have, seem to have been positively selected, suggesting they offered beneficial traits to our ancestors. Do you think you'll find that with, with these human genes in, in this Eastern Neanderthal?
3: It is possible. However, there's a major limitation when we change the direction of gene flow. Uh, We are used to look into Neanderthal integration into modern humans. And we have hundreds, if not thousands, of present-day human genomes that we can use to assess the patterns of uh, selection or even local adaptation in particular populations. When we change the direction of gene flow from modern humans into um, archived genomes, Neanderthals in this case, it becomes much more difficult to set signatures of selection because we just have very few individuals or even just one in this, in this case.
5: It, it seems like the interbreeding between humans and, and their distant relatives is a lot more common than people maybe thought. I mean, do, do you think we'll find still more instances?
3: Yes, there is, I guess, this joke in the um, population genetics community that there's always one more interbreeding event.
5: Yeah, it just seems like wherever these two populations or species, wherever they overlapped, they, they interbred, you know. It's the rule rather than the exception.
3: Yes, I would tend to agree that uh, we're going to, to see that more
2: and more. That was Sergi Castellano speaking with Ewan Calloway. You can read more about these Neander-human interactions in Castellano's paper at nature.com forward slash nature.
0: Still to come, the latest news from the AAAS conference and more on everyone's favourite discovery of the moment, gravitational waves. That's in the news chat. But first, here are the research highlights, read by Corrie Locke. Ants,
6: bees and termites form complex societies with distinct castes. Queens, workers, and soldiers. New fossil evidence suggests that termites might have been the first social insect that lived at least 100 million years ago. Researchers discovered six species of termite, including two new ones, fossilized in amber, from Myanmar. The fossils show queens, workers, and soldiers, including two-centimeter-long soldiers that are among the largest ever reported. The study was published in the journal Current Biology. some research that will make your skin crawl. Cockroaches. Researchers have figured out how those hideous vermin are able to squeeze through the tiniest crevices in our homes at lightning speeds. They found that the insects slowed down only when they were squirming their way through a gap just four millimeters high. That means that they compressed their bodies to about a third of their standing height. They maintained their speed by using their legs and feet to push against the frictional forces acting between their bodies, the ceiling, and the ground. The cockroaches inspired the development of a soft-bodied crawling robot that could compress its height by half. You can find the study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
2: Now, three stories from one of the biggest scientific conferences in the world. Adam Levy reports from Washington, D.C.
7: For the past few days, I've been at the meeting of the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, AAAS to its friends. I've learned about progress in artificial intelligence, a brief history of CRISPR gene editing, and challenges faced by lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender scientists. But one of the first sessions I went to was on the current state of the Zika virus in the Americas. The Zika virus has affected many thousands of individuals since it moved to Brazil, probably in late 2014. Although the initial symptoms of the mosquito-borne disease are generally light, that's where the good news ends. There's growing evidence that if pregnant women are infected, their babies are at increased risk of a condition called microcephaly. I caught up with Chris Dye, Director of Strategy for the World Health Organization. I started off by asking exactly how microcephaly affects infants.
8: Microcephaly is defined by the head circumference of children when they are born, but that's just the superficial manifestation. The consequences for the child, if the child is born and survives, are going to be very variable, it's clear. We're going to have mild cases, we're going to have very severe abnormalities. The risk is likely to be very small, but it can't be quantified at the moment because we don't know how many millions of original Zika infections that have been out there.
7: And what action can be taken in this case?
8: At the national public health level, mosquito control is going to be important and that's actively underway at the moment, um, particularly in Brazil in view of the, uh, the upcoming Olympic Games in Rio in the summer. And then, so far as pregnancy is concerned, we need to be giving the right advice to women who might have been exposed to infection. Uh, the issue of abortion is a controversial one. In some countries, it's illegal to do it. Uh, We need to give women in particular the right advice uh, if they've been exposed to this virus so they can make the right choices themselves about protection or about the possibility of safe abortion.
7: Has there been anything about this outbreak of the Zika virus that has taken you by surprise?
8: The speed with which it's moved through uh, continental South America and into, into Central America has really been astonishing. First sighting in Brazil towards the end of 2014, probably. Now we're at the beginning of 2016, 26 countries and territories through the Americas where there's indigenous transmission. So that speed has been amazing um, and it suggests we need to act very fast indeed.
7: Elsewhere at the conference, there's been much more cause for optimism. One session, titled Iran, Science Cooperation in a Post-Sanctions Era, saw speakers celebrating the new opportunities that have opened up for Iranian scientists since sanctions were lifted earlier this year. Ali brevon from the Rockefeller University in New York grew up in Iran before moving to America. After years of respectfully declining invitations to visit an academic institute in Iran, he finally accepted last year once it became clear that sanctions were about to be lifted. Ali told me that the immediate challenges are practical how to get the stuff
9: you need to do science in Iran Perhaps the most limiting factor is this lack of the ability to exchange material and reagents Imagine that imagine the way you build a car in the West you have uh, robotics you have people you have things that are you know, ready to go, you assemble the parts, you hand it to the next person, add something else, and at the end of a chain, you have a beautiful car that's functional. Uh, in Iran, the, the appreciation that you need to have a car is there, the appreciation that you need to build a car is there, but then when it comes down of what does it take to build a car, it's not a the theoretical aspect, it's actually the individual components that are missing. So, screws are missing, screwdrivers are missing, so you have to... Put um, from the from the most basic aspect of your requirements, um, you need to build your tools yourself. In biology, in stem cell biology, for example, is if you want to cut DNA, you need to have enzymes. Okay, so you need enzymes. getting those enzymes is impossible. The sanction completely blocked any kind of exchange. Despite all this, you have to realize where they are, and this is and this is really a testimony of the will and the desire of pushing this forward. What what does it mean to you today
7: to be speaking at a session about the sanctions lifting in Iran and Iranian science? It's a
9: very emotional experience, to be honest with you. The science part is the easy part. So, I mean, imagining that this is even happening to me is is hard because reviewing the kind of animosity that was at place for so many decades and then suddenly seeing these windows opening up and some fresh air coming is something that I didn't think I would experience in my lifetime. So it's very emotional. How how do you feel about the future? Do you feel optimistic now? Extremely. How can I not be? I don't see anybody being able to stop this. This train has already taken off from the station and the locomotive is going with maximum speed. This is the beginning of a great adventure. Well, Ali wasn't the only scientist I encountered
7: who was the bearer of good news. One of the most surprising pieces of optimism came from a session about dementia, Dementia is a huge public health concern across the world as populations age. But something unexpected seems to be emerging from the data. Here's Ken Langer from the University of Michigan. The individual risk for
10: dementia seems to be declining, actually, in uh, many high-income countries. And by that we mean uh, a 80-year-old today uh, seems to have a lower risk of getting dementia than an 80-year-old 20 years ago or so. I think there's... Uh,
7: hard to think it's anything but good. Now the natural response from me anyway is that's great news but why is it happening? What's the cause of this? Education seems to be very
10: important for uh, protecting you against dementia and, and probably for many many different reasons. One uh, is actually thought to be a, an actual direct effect of thinking and challenging your brain on changing the biology of the brain but then of course um, more educated people have different trajectories through life that probably
7: affect their overall health. It's, so what are the steps we could take to try and further lower the amount of dementia that we, we see in the population? In my shorthand for my uh, patients that ask me is to, uh, to walk, read and talk. Well that's a way of making... Us, anyway, feel quite smug at this meeting because that seems to that's be pretty a- <laughs> much all we're doing. Uh,
10: that's that's a good point. I think the scientific enterprise is uh, is wonderful
7: in, the, in how it's keeping uh, people challenged. Just one more reason to do science, to stave off dementia. And if exercise is just as useful, then the Nature Editor I saw pulling outrageous shapes on a dance floor shortly after the discovery of gravitational waves was announced will live a long and healthy life. From Washington, D.C., I'm Adam Levy.
0: We're staying in DC for the News Chat this week, and on the phone, it's reporter Davide Castelvecchi. Hi, Kerry. Uh, Are you completely over gravitational waves yet, or are you just starting to get excited? Well, in a way,
11: um, it is a new beginning because it's an entirely new field of uh, astronomy now that just got started.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So tell me, first of all, just your reaction to the discovery and and the conference it was well
11: i i think i can uh, confidently say it was the highlight of my career as a as a physics writer because i don't recall ever being uh, able to cover such a such an amazing breakthrough i mean hopefully it's you know it will hold up so there's been other cases when um um scientists have announced discovery or detection of gravitational waves and then it turned out to be um um you know, wishful thinking. But this time, it seems it's looking like they were very careful. And, and, you know, as a whole, the physics community and the, the science community has uh, seems to think that they have done it.
0: And the big question, I suppose, that you've been asking in a story this week is what next? What exactly is gravitational wave astronomy? And, and where do we go from here?
11: So gravitational wave astronomy is something that is very uh, suitable for podcasting because um, it's not really based on images it's based on uh, something akin to sound, and so uh, it's been compared to adding a soundtrack to our movie of the universe, and so we can we can detect all sorts of uh, phenomena or at least the the basically the audio track for all sorts of phenomena that, that until now we've only been able to see through more traditional telescopes.
0: And of course, at the press conference, there was a recording that they'd made of gravitational waves, uh, being, you know, of the detection of those waves. And let's have that clip again to remind people. So we can expect a lot more of this sort of result? Yes, they should be able to
11: hear um, or, or to extract from their data eventually continuous sounds of things that have been spiraling for a long time they should be able to find uh like or like bursts from things like supernovae going pop uh and then you know hopefully new, entirely new things that no one has even uh yet predicted
0: so aside from the the method which is to sort of as you say provide the soundtrack to, um, to a universe that's been a silent movie so far. I mean, what are some of the things that people want to get more of a handle on happening and some of the things that perhaps we haven't even really been able to see that this kind of astronomy might allow us to?
11: So the LIGO discovery was the most direct evidence of the existence of black holes. And so that was already a major discovery. In fact, it was probably a, a bigger discovery than discovering the waves themselves. There are a number of phenomena that people have a very weak, or scientists have a very weak grasp on, uh, such as what um, ignites supernova explosions, uh, what causes these mysterious gamma ray bursts that um, are thought to be potentially some kinds of supernovae, depending on the type of the burst. They could be supernovae, they could be uh, stars colliding with each other, um, and there are other even more exotic phenomena. So, for example, there's been people theorizing that there are these uh, topological anomalies in the fabric of the universe called cosmic strings, which sometimes they could form kind of like kinks or creases and and they could go pop and, again, produce bursts in in, uh, gravitational waves.
0: Are the LIGO facilities going to be enough to detect all of these new things or are we going to have to build even bigger, more giant facilities?
11: The good news is that people are already working on, uh, there's a third detector in Italy and there's one under construction in Japan. And together they will make much more precise uh, measurements than LIGO alone. But then there's uh, a whole uh, uh, different parts of the spectrum that LIGO and these detectors cannot Here, Uh, So it's kind of like optical telescopes, traditional optical telescopes can see the optical, you know, the visible light spectrum. And then we have radio um, observatories and we have UV, X-ray, gamma ray astronomy and so on. For gravitational waves, it's the same. We have, uh, you know, various different, uh, they have a huge possible range of wavelengths uh, of this, uh, quote unquote, sound. And for that we will need different kind of tools. So for example, uh there's this um um mission that the European Space Agency has uh that is designing and testing. In fact, on the sixteenth of February they, they uh had they hit a milestone on a test bed. Uh there's a space probe right now where they're testing their technology. So LISA, it's called, will hear sounds at a much, much lower wavelength.
0: And are any of these things like gravitational waves, the prediction of Einstein's theory from many moons ago?
11: The prediction of Einstein's theory, uh, most scientists thought that it had quite conclusively been, been uh, verified by um, already in the 1970s. Uh, so the, uh, no one was, was expecting that uh, gravitational waves didn't exist. The big question was, is our technology good enough to pick them up? There's predictions from the uh, theory of gravity, from Einstein's general theory of relativity, that uh, may never be accessible. You know, we may, never, we may never be able to really see what's going on inside the black hole at the center of the black hole, which is called the singularity. Because, of course, it's a, you know, there's a point of no return called the event horizon. And so, by de- almost by definition, the inside is inaccessible to experiment, but we may be able to recreate black holes in the lab, microscopic, like particle size, elementary particle size black holes. And in fact, uh, at CERN in Geneva, the LHC has been looking for precisely this kind of phenomenon.
0: Davide, thank you very much for joining us. More on our special coverage of gravitational waves at nature.com/gwaves. And
2: there's video too. Watch the jubilation of LIGO scientists and journalists alike as the announcement was made, as well as Davide's three minute guide to gravitational waves and LIGO. Both of those vids are at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel.
0: That's it for this week. Tune in next time. I'm Kerry Smith.
12: And I'm Noah Baker. Here's a cool fact.